parenthood has been one of the most difficult and exhilarating and painful and joyful and frustrating and fruitful and sanctifying experiences in my life. I'm sure many of you can relate. When I was in seminary, someone asked Professor D.A. Carson, how does one become a better theologian? And he answered, have more birthdays. And I might add, have children too. But parents, you can relate a little differently to the experience of God as your heavenly father, can't you? He is the one who gives you life, who is in charge, who loves you, who looks after you, who tends to your illnesses, who disciplines you and instructs you in the way you should go. And of course, even if you're not a parent this morning, you can probably relate to receiving such care and guidance from your parents as well. Don't do that. That'll hurt. Do this. This is good for you. Occasionally, a what on earth are you doing? And frequently, a reassuring, don't cry. It's all right. I'm here. And I'll give you one recent example of that last one in our family. So occasionally, our son John, um, he will talk in his sleep. I often laugh at the sounds coming from his room. It seems he's usually fighting a battle or of some kind, or maybe he's in a race or a competition, but it's always extreme. Like, everything is extreme. So a few weeks ago, I I woke up in the middle of the night to John just intensely crying, like like something was really, really wrong. Um, And I go in there, and of course, there's nothing really wrong. He's just having a nightmare. So I ran into his room, I put my hand on him, and I said to him what many of you have probably said to a troubled child before. I said this, John, don't cry. Daddy's here. Everything's okay. You're okay. It's just a bad dream. Go to sleep. I wiped his tears. He had tears on his face. I pulled his blanket up, gave him a hug and a kiss, and he went right back to sleep. And the next day, God impressed on my heart the eternal significance of that middle-of-the-night moment with my son. You see, the words I spoke to my son are something of a reflection of the assurance that God whispers into the ears of each of his troubled, beloved children groaning under the, sin, under the curse of sin and death. God whispers, don't cry. I'm here. Everything will be okay. You are okay. It will all be just a bad dream. Now, where, where am I coming up with this? Is this... This, this isn't my, my, my words aren't inspired, but I hope to show you this morning from Scripture that God wants to speak that kind of assurance to your heart, that kind of hope to you today. So open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. We'll be in the first eight verses, really focusing on the first seven, but it feels weird to just read to leave off one. We're parachuting into the revelation given to John on the Isle of Patmos, and the book has as its its original audience the seven churches that are in Asia, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. It's filled with visions, voices, symbols, numbers, all sorts of difficult things that have caused disagreement and division among believers for thousands of years. 
I'm not looking to clear up any of those difficulties for you uh, today, nor do I feel fully qualified to do so. I think I might need a few more birthdays yet. But um, I will say we would do well to avoid viewing Scripture, and especially the book of Revelation, as a sort of cryptic message that we're supposed to unlock using all sorts of fanciful, exegetical antics. This is, after all, a revelation. It is a revealed message, difficult as it can be to understand. So as one commentator put it, the details of these prophetic writings such as these are meant more to kindle hope than to feed our curiosity. And I think many of you know this, right? We've, you've probably ran into someone who maybe isn't even a Christian and they have all sorts of thoughts about the book of Revelation and there's some wild things. So that's not what we're here to do today. But I believe there's real hope. There's real hope here to nourish your soul and mine. So let's read Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is God's word. Now in verse 5, the one seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. That's a staggering claim, isn't it? It's almost too much to take in, and I'm not going to be able to cover all things in one sermon. So I'm going to focus on three specific components of this new creation that I believe are here in the text. First is a new place to call home. Second is a new people to be Christ's bride. And finally, a new presence of God with us. So that first one, a new place to call home. We'll get into this right now. Now, I love reading books. Um, I love good stories with good endings, and good books are the products of great authors. Some of my favorites would be C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. But of course, the most beautiful, good, and true story known to man is this one. This is the greatest book because it has the greatest author. And so we might expect the, the greatest book by the greatest author to have the greatest possible ending, and so it does. In the final chapters of the Bible, we're taken with the Apostle John on this breathtaking journey to both the end of all things as we know them and the beginning of all things as they will be forever. In verse 1 of our text, we read of John's vision of a new heaven 
and a new earth. This phrase, heaven and earth, is, should be familiar to you, right? The Bible opens with these words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's also a reference to Isaiah 65, which contains a promise that Yahweh would create, one day create a new heaven and earth. Here is Isaiah 65, 17 through 19. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. So heaven and earth in biblical language is really meant to cover the breadth of all creation. A new heaven and a new earth means an entirely renovated universe. So what, is, what, what happens then to the world that we know? Somebody's already said it. If you've ever watched home makeover shows like Fixer Upper, what's the first thing? Demo day, right? You bring up the sledgehammer and you take down that wall, right? So uh, that's, it's a, that wasn't supposed to be a reference to the Berlin Wall, but whatever. Um, <laughs> so you, you, uh, with the, the new creation, there's first a demolition of the old, right? And that's exactly what we see here. In Isaiah, the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. In Revelation 21, we read the heaven and earth um, the first one have passed away. And that's consistent with maybe, um, Tom, I heard you say, Second Peter 3, 10 through 13. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That is stunning, isn't it? The entire universe, as you and I have always known it, will cease to be as it has been since Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden. One of the most crucial parts of a good story is the setting. And in Genesis, that setting is a perfect world, in which, as one of my kids' books puts it, there was nothing bad ever. There was no one sad ever. But that was short-lived, wasn't it? That's not the world that you and I know. Sin and death entered the world when Adam and Eve distrusted God's word and disobeyed his command. So that the entire created order was put under the effects of a curse on account of sin. We talked about this in Romans, right? Death reigned. We talked about the entire creation groaning together. It's the reason your back hurts. It's the reason your job is taxing and tedious. Sin and the curse, that's the reason that your relationships might be strained or broken. It's the reason that childbirth hurts and the reason we experience illnesses ranging from the common cold to COVID to cancer, it's the reason you struggle with seasonal depression, anxiety, addictions, substance abuse, self-control, or whatever else. It's also the reason we have to deal with Comcast customer service, um, I think. It's the reason dog poop is like mysteriously attracted to the sole of your shoe. 
You see, all creation is groaning under the curse, all of it. So that the world as you and I know it is the exact opposite of what that book said. There is much bad and there are many sad. That's all you know. That's all I know. But as we recently celebrated at Christmas, the darkness, thank God, will not overcome the light. Because Jesus, the light of the world, has entered into our darkness and broken the power of the curse through his death on the cross. Sin has been dealt with. God's justice has been satisfied. And the whole story from beginning to end is that God's good creation from the beginning would be restored, would be redeemed, renewed, and recreated. Hallelujah. Amen. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Why? Because it was a fitting home for those who would bear his image, for you and for me. God created an atmosphere to fill to, for your lungs that is fitting. It gives you everything that you need, the oxygen that you need for your body to exist and to thrive. He created water to quench your thirst and regulate your body's temperature. He created land for you to live on and food for you to consume. He made the plants and the birds and the fish and the lions and the tigers and the bears, oh my, and the sharks, which my, my son loves so, so much. Every night before bed, we say our prayers, and he always says, and Jesus, thank you for the sharks. He loves the sharks. Uh, he loves the goblin sharks. God created those. He loves the goblin sharks. He loves the mako sharks, the basking sharks, the great white sharks, and hundreds of other sharks that somehow I know now because my son knows them all as well. Um, but God gave us this beautiful, awe-inspiring, breathtaking world full of wonders to enjoy. He gave us not just a functional space, but a beautiful home. And the promise of a new home, a new heaven and earth, without all the bad, without all the suffering, without all the sin and sorrow, that should take your breath away. Um, I've been greatly helped by Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven in Many Regards. I'd commit it to you if you haven't read it. Um, but one of the things I think is most important that he makes is that the new heavens and the new earth are not like different in substance necessarily, but different in quality. So that heaven won't be this like ethereal cloud place where we're playing harps, right, um, all day with the angels. But heaven, according to scripture, will be on earth. It is a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. So when God promised Noah he wouldn't destroy the earth again, by flood, right? But Second Peter says, the old heavens and earth will be set on fire and dissolved on the day of the Lord. So there will be a judgment by fire. Now, I am not an expert on this subject. I will defer to Ken Kilsmeyer on whether or not this is the best analogy. But it seems to me that the idea of a contr- like a controlled prairie burn is really, could be really helpful here. So take the example of the Byron Forest Preserve. Um, I'm, I'm fairly familiar with the Byron Forest Preserve, I've walked and ran out there over the past couple of years. But if they were to do a burn this spring, the prairie would rebound quite beautifully, wouldn't it? Um, Invasive species hopefully would be eradicated. There'd be room for new growth and rich nutrients in the soil to sustain that growth. And it will be a new and improved Byron Forest Preserve. It will be qualitatively different. It will be better. It will be more beautiful. But it would still be familiar and recognizable as the Byron Forest Preserve. So that I, if I go to the Byron Forest Preserve, I'm like, what is this place? I don't know this. I don't know what this is. I will still recognize it to be the Byron Forest Preserve 
in all of its newness and all of its beauty and all of its wonder. It will still have a familiarity to it. So in the same way, when the Bible speaks of a new heaven and earth, we can expect that there will be a familiarity to the new earth, even as it is far better than we've ever known it to be, and it will be the perfect home for us. I want you to think about that for a moment. Think about this. Will the new heaven and the new earth be less enjoyable or more enjoyable than that of the present? Of course, right? Infinitely more enjoyable. There will be all sorts of wonders to enjoy. There'll be sharks to swim with and mountains and forests and all sorts of exotic places to explore and dazzling colors and the richest flavors to discover. And best of all, as my children's book puts it, God will be there. We will live eternally in this new, perfect, physical world with the resurrected Christ. And that is the second thing. So the first is the home. We've got this wonderful home, a new home, and now a new people to be Christ's bride. So in verse 2, John sees the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now you might be wondering why the city is compared to a bride. And that's reasonable. Many have noted that John's use of New Jerusalem might carry something of a double meaning. So while it's appropriate for us to interpret the New Jerusalem as an actual city or a literal heavenly place for lots of reasons, it seems it's also appropriate to interpret this as a metaphor for God's redeemed and renewed people, the church, the bride of Christ. So where am I getting that from? How, how can I say that? First, because of what the word bride actually denotes. It's a personal term. So it would be nonsensical if I said, um, that my bride is from is the, the city of Kissimmee, Florida, right? Um, but it is true that my wife, Michelle, her very identity is tied up with the real place of Kissimmee, Florida. So that when I think of Kissimmee, I think of my wife. Similarly, it's, it's really hard to think of Israel, of God's people, without thinking of the promised land and the mountain, Mount Zion, and that city, Jerusalem. The place is significant. The place is tied up with the identity of God's people. There is meaningful history in that geographical place. No doubt about it. But I think it's, I mean, this is very easy for us to all understand. Think about your hometown. Think about the place where you grew up. Maybe even an old house. There's meaningful history there. The physical place is important. And a physical place to call home is what we can expect in this new physical world, too. So I don't, I don't fully know what that's all going to look like. It's so wondrous that we can't, we can't just nail it down precisely. We can, we can use Scripture, we can look at Scripture and see what God has revealed to us, but no one knows yet. We see in a mirror dimly still. But... I want to point out that there is that interplay of bride city language. So it comes up again in verse 9 and 10. I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb, and then he carried me away in the spirit and showed me what? The holy city, Jerusalem. Or consider that the 12 city gates bear the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel in verse 12. Or it's 12 foundations that bear the names of the 12 apostles of the lambs. 12 tribes, 12 apostles, people. The city is this comprehensive image of the covenant people of God from both old and new covenants. This new city, the the new Jerusalem, is both place and 
people. God's people are called Christ's bride, somewhat indirectly in the Gospels, explicitly and directly by Paul in Ephesians 5, in Romans 7, in 2 Corinthians 11, and several times here in the book of Revelation. And you add to that, of course, the biblical imagery of, um, let's say, Hosea, the book of Hosea, where Israel is the unfaithful wife to Yahweh. And that, by the way, is the theme throughout the Old Testament, that Israel's idolatry is spoken of in terms of marital infidelity. We are his bride. And marriage is a good gift from God, isn't it? It's a covenant relationship between one man and one woman ordained by God, wherein the two beautifully and mysteriously become one flesh. And that language, by the way, is very important. Because sometimes we speak of a spouse as a soulmate. Have you ever heard this? Or maybe you've said this before. It's okay. But it's not entirely accurate, is it? What we mean to say by my spouse is my soulmate is that marriage is more than a social arrangement. It's more than just sex or a shared bank account. We mean to say that our marriage is fulfilling and we're committed to this relationship. But for all the warm feelings that that phrase might give us, the Bible emphatically states that your spouse is not your soulmate. Rather, the Bible speaks of a spouse as a fleshmate. Your soulmate, dear brother or sister, is none other but Jesus Christ. He was the one you were made for and whom your heart should desire above none other. So that the best of our marriages only offer us a foretaste, a glimpse into the heavenly reality and joy of what it means to have someone who knows you, who loves you, who accepts you, who gives themselves fully to you without reserve. That's Jesus. Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus is your true soulmate. Jesus will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never cheat on you. He will never hurt you. He will never use or abuse you. Some of you here might be looking for love in all the wrong places. You might be trying to get from a man or a woman what only Jesus can provide. You, like Bono or me digging through my refrigerator, still haven't found what you're looking for. But the wonderfully good news is that you can have Jesus. You can. Jesus can be yours, and you can be his. And that's true for all of us here today. To have Jesus, you need only to place your trust in him and all he has done for you. So that if you believe that Jesus is both God and man who lived a perfect life of obedience to the Father, who died for your sins, who was raised in power to free you from the curse of sin and death, who is seated at the right hand of God the Father, making intercession for you for all eternity, if you believe that and you put your hope in that and you trust that and you take it to the bank and you love him for what he's done for you, he's yours and you are his. And the best news is Jesus bids us to come exactly as we are. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for you. He bids you to come as you are. That's beauty. But there's also beauty and power in the fact that Jesus doesn't leave us where he finds us. We are messy and broken, yes, but Jesus is the one who cleanses us from all unrighteousness, who binds up our brokenness and makes us whole. 
By his stripes you are healed. Jesus is the one who makes beauty from ashes. He's the one who makes us new by his spirit so that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Your nakedness is covered. All of your exposed sin and shame has been forgiven and removed. Now, some of you, some of you might need to stop living like the old you and start living like the new person that Jesus intends for you to be. Because Christ will not have a broken and messy bride. He will have a beautiful bride that is adorned for him. Again, this is part of that significance of the bride city language, so that in John's vision, the city is radiant, verse 11, like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. The wall is built of jasper, verse 18. The city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall were adorned with every kind of jewel, verse 19. The 12 gates were pearls. The street was pure gold. The city is place and people, and it's beautiful. And you can compare that to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all nations. He goes on and he says, The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Christ's bride is a beautiful, adorned bride, but it's adorned by the righteousness that he alone can give. Jesus is the one who promises to make you new. He will do it. The promise to make all things new means that one day you won't struggle. You won't. With lust, with anger, with fear, with anxiety, or greed, or self-control, or any other besetting sin that you have experienced in your life. You will be clothed with a righteousness like you've never known in this life. Now, believer, when God looks at, at, at you today, in Christ, he accounts to you Christ's righteousness as if it were your own. But when God returns to make all things new, it will be more than just an accounting of Christ's righteousness as your own. You will be fully cleansed, fully cleansed from sin. Not only its power and penalty, which we experience the joy of that now, the, the power of sin broken, if you are a believer, broken over you. The penalty of sin paid by Christ for you. And one day the presence of sin will be fully eradicated in your life. When Christ returns, sin will be no more, and that is incredible news, isn't it? Amen. Amen. Life forever in a perfect place as perfect people for a perfect soul mate. That's beautiful. But I, I feel like the, uh, what was the one telemarketer, the guy that was like, but wait, there's more, right? It's even better than that because the promise of verse four says that there will be no more tears, no more death, no mourning, no crying, no pain, that's a pretty broad term. 
And when verse 5 says Jesus will make all things new, you can take that promise to the bank. All means all, means all, including your body and your mind. No back pain, no cancer, no COVID, no dealing with customer service from Comcast. (laughs) No aging, failing, feeble bodies. Scripture teaches we will have bodies, physical bodies that will be remade like Christ's resurrection body. They will be familiar to us, but they will be wonderfully new and infinitely better than anything you've ever known. Yeah, amazing. And God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Think about this for a moment. What is causing you tears today? Stop to think about that for a moment. What is causing you tears today? What pains your heart the most? What burdens are you carrying right now? Because when Christ returns, that pain, that burden, that fear, it will be gone. Just like my son's bad dream. And God himself will wipe away your tears. And he will be with you. It's all right. Everything's okay. I'm here. It's just a bad dream. That's the substance. That is the substance of all of that pain that you're feeling right now. If you are in Christ, it will be as if it is nothing. We can't even begin to comprehend that now because it feels like the world is, is weighing, uh, crushing us. But believer, take heart. Take heart. It will not be that way. God will wipe away every tear. Christ is the bridegroom and he will make all things right. And finally, a new presence of God with man. So heaven on earth, with all its joys and wonders, the sights, the smells, the familiar faces, the exotic places, the plants and the animals and the shark swimming, if heaven had all of that and didn't have God, it wouldn't be heaven. And it couldn't be a perfect home for a perfect bride because there'd be no perfect soulmate. It would be empty and void and it would be nothing less than hell. You see, all of the wonders of the new creation are meant to be experienced in God's presence for his glory and our forever joy. So that the more joy we experience in this new world that we expect, In heaven with God, the more glory we will give to him. But we can't have joy without God. How do we know this? Because Augustine said it in his prayer to God, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And of course, he's just drawing from scripture. Psalmist said in Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 16, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord and I have no good apart from you. Nothing. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So the greatest promise of Revelation 21 is this, Behold, 
The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. God will make his home, his dwelling place with man fully and forever. And we know that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And we know that if we've been reborn by God's spirit, then his spirit indwells us. God is with us. Us even now by faith. But this is a new presence of God with man. This is different. This is better. It's better than anything we know now. Revelation 22.4 says, they will see his face. Speaking of God. One of the things I'm looking forward to in the new heaven and earth is redeemed emotions and perfect feelings and thoughts. Because on, on this side of eternity, I know that God is omnipresent, and I know that the Spirit dwells in me, and I know that Christ dwells in me, and I know all of that objectively, but I don't always feel it. I don't always feel that. Maybe you might feel like the psalmist from time to time, that God has hidden his face from you, or that he feels far away. In the new heaven and earth, you will experience God's presence like never before. I imagine this analogy falls woefully short. All of mine typically do. But it reminds me of our feeble attempts to maintain a sense of community during COVID, those early days, when uh, we were live streaming and Bruce and I were standing alone on the stage and you were there. You were a camera on the back of the wall. You watched from home. We joined the Zoom calls and we did all the prayer meetings and we did some youth group and it was horrible. I apologize um, to all of you. Be- because we were together, sort of, right? But virtual reality is just such an oxymoron, isn't it? It's, it's real, virtually. It's virtually real, which is the same thing as just saying it's not real, right? It's just not real. So we were, in, we were together, maybe in spirit, But we weren't really together, right? We weren't really gathered. We were virtually gathered. And there's plenty of good reasons that we've continued to keep live streaming. It's never been to provide an alternative to church. That's never been the reason. It's a poor substitute, better than nothing, something, but it's not the same. And of course, this analogy falls short because Christ is really with us. Right, And the Spirit really does indwell us, not just virtually, like they really are present with us. But the presence we will experience with, with all three persons of the triune Godhead in the new heaven, in the new earth, will feel far more real than any experience of God's presence that you have felt on this side of eternity when you feel you're nearest to God. Like infinitely greater than that. So we'll be physically present. Just think about this. We will be physically present with the resurrected Christ. You will be able to see and touch the wounds of Christ that brought you healing and forgiveness and purchased your pardon. Have you ever thought like, man, I wish I could be, you know, I wish I could be like Thomas or, you know, one of the, Apostles who get to see Jesus after his resurrection, like, hey, he's here. He's like in the room with us. We're eating fish with him. We're touching, we're putting our hand on his side. Guess what? You will be. You will be. 
If you have trusted Christ, you will one day see him and, and be present with him. And you can touch his wounds. And you can dine with him in his kingdom. And that will be joy beyond anything that I can begin to understand. It's the greatest joy of all. So do you long this morning to, to know this joy that I've been speaking of? I, I long for it. Maybe you've never desired this before. Um, or maybe you've heard some of these things, but it's been kind of lifeless and dull to you. Maybe you've never considered the reality of a new heavens and a new earth. I want you to hear the invitation of God today. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. You are invited this morning to quench your thirst for eternity. You're longing for a perfect place to call home. You're longing for a perfect body and mind and spirit and you're longing for God's presence. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. But you can conquer by the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony. That is your faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the best possible news today. That is offered freely to you. So that all of your joys, all of your pains, will be merely shadows of what you will experience in the new heaven and new earth in the presence of God. Whatever your pain is today, whatever your fear, whatever heartache you feel or burden you bear today, know that God sees you and God hears you and God cares for you. Believer, God is with you now. And God will one day make it all okay. You are perfectly safe with him. Nothing can harm you. Death has no power over you. God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. And today you can rest in the knowledge that God will one day make all things new. I'm going to end this sermon in a way that I've never done before, and I don't know I don't know if it's been done here before or not, but I just want to read to you an excerpt from a book. It is not scripture, um, so you can consider that the close of the sermon if you want, and this is an outro, uh, however you want to see this. But I want to read to you something that I think probably better captures the heart of the new heavens and the new earth than a lot of our kind of normal language that we might be used to hearing does, and that's an excerpt from C.S. Lewis's the, the Final Battle or The Last Battle. It's a little bit long, and it's not scripture, okay? Um, this is a story. If you've never read The Chronicles of Narnia, this is a story written for children, um, and it is something of a thought experiment that C.S. Lewis did as he imagined, what would it be like if Jesus were incarnate in another world? So this is not our world, this is not... Okay, so you can take that with all the grain of salt that it is. But I want you to hear this. I'll close with this and then we'll close with prayer and a final song. Then they all went forward together, always westward, for that seemed to be the direction Aslan, who was the Christ figure, if you haven't read these 
books, The Lion, the direction Aslan had meant when he cried out further up and further in. Many other creatures were slowly moving the same way, but that grassy country was very wide and there was no crowding. Still seemed to be early and the morning freshness was in the air. They kept on stopping to look round and to look behind them, partly because it was so beautiful, but partly also because there was something about it which they could not understand. Peter, said Lucy, where is this, do you suppose? I don't know, said the high king. It reminds me of somewhere, but I I can't give it a name. Could it be somewhere we once stayed for a holiday when we were very, very small? Would have had to have been a jolly good holiday, said Eustace. I bet there isn't a country like this anywhere in our world. Look at the colors. You can get a blue like that blue on those mountains in our world. Is it not Aslan's country, said Tyrion? Not like the Aslan's country on top of that mountain beyond the eastern end of the world, said Jill. I've been there. If you ask me, said Edmund, it's like somewhere in the Narnian world. Of course, Narnia is the setting, for those of you who haven't read this. Look at those mountains ahead, and the big ice mountains beyond them. Surely they're rather like the mountains we used to see from Narnia, the ones westward, beyond the waterfall. Yes, so they are, said Peter. Only these are bigger. I don't think those, are, those ones are so very like anything in Narnia, said Lucy, but look there. She pointed southward to their left, and everyone stopped and turned to look. Those hills, said Lucy, the nice woody ones and the blue ones behind, aren't they very like the southern border of Narnia? Like, cried Edmund, after a moment's silence. Why, they're exactly like. Look, there's Mount Pyre with his forked head, and there's the pass into Arkenland and everything. And yet they're not like, said Lucy. They're different. They have more colors on them. And they look further away than I remembered, and they're more, more, oh, I don't know, more like the real thing, said Lord Diggory softly. Suddenly, Farsight the eagle spread his wings, soared 30 or 40 feet up into the air, circled round and lighted on the ground. Kings and queens, he cried, we have all been blind. We are only beginning to see where we are. From up there, I've seen it all. Ettensmere, Beaver's Dam, the Great River, and Care Paravel still shining on the edge of the Eastern Sea. Narnia is not dead. This is Narnia. But how can it be, said Peter? For Aslan told us older ones we should never return to Narnia, and here we are. Yes, said Eustace, and we saw it all destroyed and the sun put out. And it's all so different, said Lucy. The eagle is right said the Lord Diggory. Listen, Peter, when Aslan said you could never go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia you were thinking of. But that was not the real Narnia, which has always been here and always will be here, just as our own world, England and all, is only a shadow or copy of something in Aslan's real world. You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course it is different, as different as the real thing is from a shadow or as waking life is from a dream. And soon they found themselves all walking together, and a great bright procession it was up towards the mountains, higher than you could see in this world, even if they were to be seen. But there was no snow on those mountains. There were forests and green slopes and sweet orchards and flashing waterfalls, one above another, going up forever. And the land they were walking on grew narrower all the time with a deep valley on each side. 
And across the valley, the land, which was the real England, grew nearer and nearer. The light ahead was growing stronger. Lucy said, or saw that a great series of many-colored cliffs led up in front of them like a giant's staircase. And then she forgot everything else because Aslan himself was coming, leaping down from cliff to cliff like a living cataract of power and beauty. Then Aslan turned to them and said, you do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. Lucy said, we're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan, and you have sent us back into our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leaped, and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. It's beautiful. It's not scripture, but you can't say that he's not informed by all the things that we've been talking about. This is the beauty of Christ making all things new. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, eye has not seen nor ear has heard all the things that you have prepared for us. We see in a mirror dimly. One, one day we will see you face to face. Father, we, we confess that our hearts have longed for joy in wrong places. We confess that we have forsaken the King of Kings by looking for worldly treasure here. Lord, would you help us to treasure Christ, to treasure this kingdom, this new creation that one day will be ours? Father, would you bind up the broken this morning? Would you strengthen weak knees? All who are suffering under the sin, under sin and death, or those who are fighting cancer, those who have lost loved ones this last year, those who have various ailments of body and mind, those who are struggling with sin, Lord, would you speak your words of life into their heart this morning? And would the hope of the gospel become ever more real and alive to them? Would they treasure, above all else, the lamb who was slain to purchase their pardon 
and to make all things new. We ask all of this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Let's stand as we sing a final song.